Hello and welcome to Unofficial Partner, the Sports Business Podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. There's a very small group of people who have genuinely shaped what is today called the sports marketing industry. Patrick Nally is one of those and is often bracketed together with Mark McCormack and Horst Dassler as the genuine architects of today's sports business. It's hard to think of a major event or sport that doesn't bear Nally's handprints. From the Olympics and FIFA World Cup through to the Commonwealth Games, snooker, rugby, golf, world athletics, cricket and more latterly match poker. And that's just part of the story. This is a conversation that reveals the backroom deals, the agency politics and sometimes vicious personal rivalries among people at the very top of sport over the last 50 years. If you've ever wondered how we got here today, you'll enjoy the next hour. As ever, if you enjoy our podcast, you'll really like the Unofficial Partner weekly newsletter, which builds on the topics and themes we talk about in more depth. You can sign up to that via unofficialpartner.com, where you can also delve into the back catalogue of conversations with people from every corner of sport. Stand by now for Patrick Nally. But no, I, I get more and more podcast requests. Uh, probably you know, a couple of week come in, people I just don't know. They contact me on um, uh, Twitter and I tell them to send me more info. But yeah, there's more and more people. And I suppose COVID is creating the need for people to try and find things to do and how they sort of capitalize on it financially, I don't know. But certainly more and more people are trying to get involved, aren't they? But you're way ahead of the game which is good. Well, we certainly, you know, the numbers are very good and they've, it's quite hard to work out the COVID impact because quite often people say, well, I don't commute anymore, so I don't listen as much. But then actually, because, you know, lots of other stuff is like webinars and that you got to sit, you know, it feels like another Zoom call, you know, which okay. no one needs another Zoom call in their life. So it's actually quite nice to to just have a listen you can go and listen and walk and run and whatever yeah, cycle. In, in, your, in your own time which is what's good about it you don't have yeah. to be fixed with other people at the other end looking at you you can just quietly sit yeah no it's good but um you've got the diehard team that sort of you know are very very supportive all the time and make all the right comments you know so yeah i, th- I think it's it's good i think you've done very well yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's good fun. I mean, it's quite nice to, you know, what else are you going to do? I'm locked down. So, you know, it's nice to <laughs> as we all have are. an excuse to pick up the, you know. As we all are. Have a, have a call. But yeah. um, there's so many different things that we could talk about, obviously. And this we won't get, I don't want to do the whole life of Patrick Nally in one go because it's just, there's just so many bits to it. We'll be here all day. I, all day. Yeah, we? I know. <laughs> but one of the things I was I was looking at was so many things. When I'm you know when you look at sport today the sports market and the business and you know whether it's if we just narrow it down even to football um you've got super league threats you've got uefa and fifa politics you've got all of the stuff all the agencies you've now got you know you've got private equity and you know external finance hovering around in various places and i always think you were doing this you, you know, decades ago, you were yeah. involved in this. What did just before we go backwards? What's your sort of view when you look across all? You know, the the for example, the Super League conversation and the UEFA stuff and and FIFA coming out and saying various things. What what do you think when you when you look and 
see those news stories? Well, one surprise just to how it's grown and continued to grow. Obviously, the whole broadcast change and the whole digital revolution and the fact that everybody's looking to capture audiences, whether it's Amazon or what have you, Facebook, then obviously a sport like football, which is a global sport now, wasn't when we started, but is now, clearly is an attraction. So therefore, but everybody's trying to buy into it. That obviously increases the value of the leagues. It increases the value of the clubs. It makes the FIFA and the UEFA's and the other continental confederations not only sort of wealthier and wealthier, but more and more in demand. And of course, it, it needs control because if it keeps growing and there's too many people trying to compete with it, trying to set up too many tournaments, too many World Club Cups and everything else, and eventually you know, it'll debase the coinage and it will start going backwards rather than forwards. So I think the fact that you know FIFA has had its scandal, and I suppose UEFA has suffered to a degree from that as well with Platini and with other things, that really they've lost quite a bit of credibility, which therefore puts up danger signs, is that if they lose control and this thing is allowed to get out of control and big bucks and dollars can buy new leagues, then I think the whole thing could go into a very serious decline. Because at the end of the day, it is the passion of the individuals that support their clubs, that love their clubs, that want to be continue to be supporting their clubs. But when it becomes just a sort of free-for-all without clear understanding of structures, clear understanding of tournaments, you know, there is a real risk and a real danger. What we've seen is this massive you know, development and boom of a great sport could actually just go in reverse. But, you know, when I started, it, it, it wasn't big in Africa. It wasn't big in Asia. Now it is. It's now, without doubt, the most dominant sport and probably nothing's ever going to really touch it. But that is the danger in itself, is that everybody wants a piece of the pie. Was there always, I mean, one of the readings of the Super League story is, you know, and the growth of the clubs and the power of the clubs, a few, you know, elite clubs. Um, was that always there? Was that always a sort of threat? Were the clubs always thinking, well, we should be getting more money? No, I don't think so, in that the clubs initially were well disciplined within their nations and collaborated with their national football associations. But I suppose Murdoch can take the credit for the fact that it started here with Sky, that when money really started pouring in to the clubs because of the TV, the TV rights, that that resulted then in players, 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 agents, that whole money machine really started to be generated in a significant way. It meant that clubs clearly then started enjoying substantial revenues. It took them from where they were probably pretty risky in terms of, you know, it was difficult to balance their books in many years in terms of that alone making a return. But when they became so sort of financially viable, became attractive to big financial groups to own them, for rich individuals to pour money in, you know, sheikhs in um, the Middle East to want to invest, others from Asia, from China, I think that suddenly put a lot of power into the clubs. But the clubs, therefore, have got to not forget how it's all come about through the structure 
of a FIFA, of a UEFA, or having a disciplined approach, you know, building this excitement with Champions League and other things. And if all that suddenly disappears and World Clubs Cup becomes one thing, Super League becomes another thing, that whole sort of structure that was so carefully built will just fold in on itself. And I think clubs have got to be very careful about just not being too greedy and wanting more and more and more. Let's be quite candid. Most of the clubs in the major European and in most of the other key markets are doing incredibly well financially. You know, there is a fear that they'll kill the golden goose because, you know, even the World Clubs Cup itself, we always resisted because it goes way back to the 70s, you know, when we first, you know, reviewed the World Clubs Cup as a concept. Um, and we all came to the conclusion it was a bit of a danger because it was fighting, you know, the national teams. And really, it was the national teams that gave that great enthusiasm, that great, you know, emotive um, support by the supporters. And if you took that nation's element away and reduced and diminished it just to clubs, you know, there was going to be um, a lot of competition of killing one thing. Is a World Clubs Cup going to become bigger than the World Cup? Um, should those things be competing with each other? So I think the success, and there has been incredible success, is in itself the danger if there's too much greed for more and more and more. When would that, who was in that room or, you know, when you talked about the World Cup, Club Cup, whatever we are calling it, um, in the 70s, is that a sort of, are we going back to Horst Dassler? To a degree, there was a sports journalist from the Daily Mail whose name will come to me. Who's the boxing correspondent? Um, Jeff currently. Powell. Jeff Powell. Jeff Powell oh, worked yeah. with us, with West Alley. And I think Jeff Powell wrote the initial concept of having a World Clubs Cup. Really? Yeah, yeah, extraordinary, isn't it? Um, yes, Horst and I were working together then. Yes, we had the Coca-Cola development programming program being successful into Africa and Asia. Yes, we were working to get, you know, World Cup rights through Argentina um, established. So, yeah, we were on the move to support Avalanche in his eight-point plan to help him achieve all those objectives that he had set himself. And, yeah, we looked at the World Clubs Cup as a concept and saw it as being potentially a threat but did agree to explore, which we did with the Toyota Cup, which we did with UEFA. Dr. Frankie then, Hans Bangeter was the general secretary, and we actually got Knott's Forest and whoever the um, Uruguayan team was back then um, to, to actually do an event in Japan for the Toyota Cup to just see what sort of an impact of two top teams would, would, would have. And on the one hand, although it was clearly successful, on the other hand, I think it did evidence to us, you know, it was a threat. It could, it could start jeopardising the national games. And at that stage, FIFA was about nations, not about clubs. UEFA was about nations then, not clubs. And UEFA and FIFA were collaborating together. Yeah, and back then, um, despite it being quite an imaginative idea, even then we were thinking this was a risk to to you know debase the coinage of what is the real event which is nation against nation there's still at the heart of the sports business then and now is the sort of and you mentioned risk 
But the other bit is the financial risk of guarantees, isn't it? Trying to say, well, okay, I will take this property, I will put the money up, I will create this moment, and I will then sell it to third parties and, and take a cut. And that's, we're looking now, you know, we're in a position, you look at France today, Media Pro have taken that bet and seemingly lost that bet. And, you know, we, we you could go back through a whole range of different third parties you could talk to talk about isl or we talk about kirsch or we talk about a whole you know number of different agencies who have said that's a bet we're going to take we're going to stamp up the money and then we're going to make good um that's essentially the same model is is at play whether it's a world club championship um with soft bank or uh, you know other external investment Back right, basically, the sports event business is based on that premise, isn't it, of of risk and reward? Yes, it is. Because when we started, there was no clarity of rights. FIFA didn't really own its rights because it didn't even understand its rights. So, if I asked who had the right to pour drinks in a stadium at a World Cup, they couldn't answer. Who had the rights to put up advertising boards around the stadium? there wasn't really a clear answer. So we were lucky back then in that because FIFA nor UEFA really understood rights at that point in time, weren't sort of very profitable entities, just had limited staff, we basically created the packages and owned those packages. And we negotiated with the sponsors. The sponsor contracted us. The broadcasters contracted us. Uh, FIFA then just got whatever we'd previously agreed with them as a sum of money to be part of our program rather than us being part of their program. Obviously, that led on with ISL, with the Densu Dazzler join up, and that carried on. And ISL owned those properties. They owned the FIFA UEFA properties. They owned the IOC properties. And in that, that way, back then, would have understood the risk and reward because they knew what their costs were and they had a pretty good idea of what their sales opportunities and renewals would be, which would guarantee them a pretty healthy profit. As times changed with the debacle with ISL, UEFA taking initially, it went through team, but then bringing rights back, FIFA bringing rights back, the fact that people have to be more transparent, then clearly that isn't the margins that ISL could have enjoyed because everybody is now competing with everybody and therefore, like ISL, went spectacularly bankrupt because it was putting up guarantees on tennis, guarantees on Brazilian football clubs without really understanding what it was doing because the principals had never been trained in it. They'd picked it up along the way. You've seen many people now um, putting up big guarantees not really understanding the commercial return and the commercial opportunity and suffering and failing and going bankrupt in accordance. You know, some of the Chinese purchases have seen a complete demise of the assets that they've bought, thinking that they were very, very attractive. So it's a risk reward that in many ways, I think federations, leagues, clubs, if they're going to control the rights themselves, really ought to take that responsibility to see those agreements through to the end user. Using bridges with media companies or with Dentsus of this world to where they're taking a fixed amount and leaving them to then sell on, I think 
is a change that I think is is going to slowly disappear because the risks are now just too great. Unless you've got a soft bank that's actually guaranteeing to write those checks, or you've got a Middle Eastern um, country that is prepared to put up the money to put that World Clubs Cup tournament into reality, you know, the risks are just getting too great. Some of them, like Media Pro, of course, have a good range of products that leverage is also important. One of the things that we did, and then I suppose ISL continued to do, was that if somebody wanted FIFA, but we also had athletics and we also had swimming, then clearly, you know, leverage, though you shouldn't, you did. You made it clear that, well, if you wanted the prime, you had to take some of the subprime, and therefore there was quite a lot of leverage. But a lot of that is now no longer available because of transparency, because of ethics. Um, so it's becoming more and more difficult for a media pro or for any of these companies to do the leverage that perhaps once upon a time was there. So I think, yeah, the industry is going to change because there no longer is that opportunity. I think it's got to go back much more to being bespoke, to creating your own cat package, your own concept, which again creates a greater risk of people trying to put things in football, in leagues, in basketballs, you know, it's putting more pressure to try and create your own. But I think it's got to be away from it into digital, into esport, into other things that haven't got the same restrictions that a FIFA UEFA have got to cling to as far as football is concerned. I mean, we should, for listeners who, you know, don't know the story, and they, it's one of those stories that the reason I think it's still incredibly relevant is that actually the players today link back to you and Horst Assler in 1970 odd. So, and we should explain that, you know, there is, a, and I've never done this. I've always said I was going to do it, but it's, it, I've started it a couple of times for various publications, which is a sort of family tree thing. But if you go back from FIFA and UEFA and team today, you get to ISL quite quickly because the people that set up team came out of ISL as I'm, you know, um, Jürgen Lentz and Klaus Hempel yep. set up team who now, you know, obviously are the, the agency that runs um, the commercial side of UEFA um, and particularly the Champions League. You've also got um, from ISL, you then go to Densu and Horst Dassler. But before that, it was you and Horst Dassler. So that's a sort of a very, very fast 2021 back to 19... 19- 71 and if we're if we're sort of one way of looking at today is to look at it through the lens of the long game you know how we got here let's just talk about um well let's talk about west nally because west nally i find interesting because you it was you obviously and peter west and peter i know peter i grew up with peter west in my living room on the telly commentating on foot um cricket and and uh sometimes rugby, but he was the face of the BBC's cricket coverage. And you. So let's just talk about that. How did you get into bed with Horst Dassler initially? Because well, you were a successful British sports agency. Yeah, just to give a very brief background, I started at 15 years of age in an advertising agency in the dispatch department on a training scheme. Moved from one agency to another because it would give me a better sort of prospect. So I went to an American agency called Irwin Wasey, part of Interpublic Group, because 
Octagon, which is part of Interpublic Group, is all part of that family as well. I quite quickly went into the PR public relations division of that agency, became the press stringer for Littlewoods Pools, and got to know newspaper guys and um, everybody was my mate because they always wanted the story and I got to understand how the press and certainly the sports media sort of responded. So early baptism. And then my boss was asked to set up a new public relations company with an agency um, for which he said he couldn't and recommended me as a pretty young man. And Peter West was going to be the front man, the chairman of this new public relations company. To try and impress Peter, because I knew Peter as like you did, because I watched him on cricket. I saw him in rugby. He was doing the commentary from Wimbledon. So he was doing Even Come Dancing back in those days. So um, Peter was a well-known sports broadcaster. And I remember saying to Peter, Peter, why don't we use sport as a means of communication? If we're going to be in public relations, we're looking at responding to clients, can't we some way use sport as a means of communication. I had no idea what that meant, but we then decided to look at when we got a brief from a client like Greenshield Stamps, could we come up with a sporting idea that will respond to how to give Greenshield a better image? How could they work with local authorities? Could they embrace tennis, which is a upmarket sport, use the courts at local authorities and teach every kid in England the chance to pick up a tennis racket and play tennis. It worked. And very, very quickly, probably within 18 months, Peter and I had set up a little PR company that suddenly was being very successful. We came into contact, obviously, with the tobacco industry and through Benson Hedges started the um, Benson Hedges Cricket Cup. We started the tennis, um, you know, all sorts of things started working, we got involved with the Olympics, we got BP to support the Olympics, going into Munich in 1972. So we'd stumbled across using sport as a means of communication before before anybody else was doing it. Yeah, Mark McCormack was doing something in the States, but you know he was much more into man management and into being a lawyer. I think Horst had obviously heard about what we were doing, he sent one of his colleagues, John Bolter, in, I suppose, 1974, just after Avalanche had been elected, to ask if we would go and meet with him. And I went and met him. I didn't really understand international sports federations at that stage. I knew about domestic federations, and I knew most domestic federations were amateur run out of people's garages. There was no permanent staff. There's no real money, no lawyers, no understanding. And it appeared that Horst introduced me to the international federations, which were basically the same. They were amateur organizations, often supported by an individual spending their own money, their own time, very little money, very little funding, very little finance. Avalanche, of course, came along to Sir Stanley Rouse as the first person that had actively gone out to campaign to be elected. And he had an eight-point plan that he promised all the associations that were then predominantly European and um, and, uh, South American that his eight-point plan would be put in place. But he had no money. FIFA had no money. FIFA had rented offices in Zurich, um, probably five staff, um, and no resource or ability to, to do what they wanted to do. One of the ideas was a development program 
And I saw a lot of merit in a development programming, taking the strengths of a great sport called soccer, called football, to Africa and Asia. I had a client called Coca-Cola. I knew Coca-Cola was looking for a project that would involve them with governments, with institutions that will sort of de-Americanize them because they'd gone into a lot of these countries through the American forces. They'd been looked as being the American forces product, but wanted to integrate themselves into the culture and the character of those countries. So although FIFA didn't have any resources to write this plan, we wrote this plan. We worked with a German uh, Klaus Willing to help do the development plan. We then had to put a sort of commercial part of it, which would link to the product, which was skills programs. We created this Kick Me um, skills project and other teaching materials. And I sold to Coca-Cola this whole concept of teaching the world, specifically Africa and Asia, football through this FIFA Coca-Cola development program. And that was just the beginnings. And I think from Horst's point of view, he thought this was incredible because if I could do this with FIFA, think what I could do this with athletics, with swimming, with the Olympics and with all the other things. But of course, having created that program with FIFA and Coca-Cola, we were heading towards a World Cup in Argentina in 78. We'd already launched the youth tournament for the Coca-Cola Cup in Tunis in 77 and we're going into Japan with Dentsu in 79 with the World Youth Tournament where our friend Maradona was going to become on the stage. Um, and I assumed that FIFA could give Coca-Cola some exclusive relationship or involvement with their World Cup. They couldn't. They, as far as they were concerned, they'd handed it over to Argentina and therefore it was really up to us to come to some agreement with Argentina because they themselves left it entirely to their organizing um, people at, at that stage. That was in 76, when there was a military coup. Um, the military junta took over uh, everything in Argentina. I was sent to Argentina in 76 as a young man, in, ostensibly to ne negotiate with a military junta, to try and convince a military junta that if they wanted to keep the World Cup, then we needed to come to a different understanding because we wanted to present it with Coca-Cola. Take us in that side, that room then, Patrick. Who was in that room when you, went, when you had that conversation? Well, the first time I went, besides being met by one of the military junta's son, who then just wanted to take me around like a playboy and snap his fingers at any girl that happened to be in the nightclub, uh, which was terrifying with what was going on. The worst part of it was the man that they'd selected to be the head of the organizing committee was blown up in his bed um, the day of our meeting. And I was then ushered out of the country very, very quickly, stuck on a plane. It was a Braniff plane. I ended up in Miami, um, you know, not knowing what was going on, as you can imagine, pretty terrified, um, not really wanting to go back. But I was convinced to go back. And this time we did meet with the um, military who had then appointed an admiral, an Admiral Lacoste. And to my amazement, I did a PR pitch with my PR background. I pitched to them that Argentina was being looked at by the world in a pretty dreadful state. Look at it, you've got barbed wire, you've got guys with guns, you've got, you know, this is 
not much of an image for you. There's fear about bringing the World Cup to you. But if we could come to some plan to collaborate that you give us control of the stadia, you give us the control of the marks and emblems, all the marks of the gauchito and the hands of Peron with the ball have passed, that if we could collaborate together, we could not only make this World Cup a great success, but we could portray Argentina in a very positive light as opposed to the negative light to which. And to my surprise, my PR training and my PR pitch worked and they agreed. Um, and the extraordinary thing was nobody from FIFA was with me on these negotiations. Um, Dr. Kayser, who I think was a really, really nice and honourable guy who got stabbed in the back later at FIFA, was then the general secretary. And he just left it to me. And Rennie Court, the press officer, just left it to me. And to my surprise, yes, we got the agreements. We got the Argentinians to collaborate. They had to make sure their team won, which they did. And the aftermath of everybody being so exciting and jumping, you know, at the end of that World uh, Cup and everybody looking at it as being an extraordinary event, we tidied it up. Not only did Coca-Cola have a great success at no cost because the money that we generated from other sponsors meant that we liquidated all of Coca-Cola's costs, but Gillette, Canon, many companies saw the benefit of a coordinated approach. And therefore, the World Cup in 78 Argentina was the turning point, not only for me, for us, for Coke, but also for FIFA, because it showed to FIFA that if you manage this in a professional, structured way, then obviously it would work and it would work significantly well for them. It's interesting, um, just on a side note, I mean, I've spoken to a few people over the years who say, oh, well, Patrick was the best presenter I've ever seen. He was the best pitch presenter that they'd ever seen. And, you know, and, and there must have been something about you because, as you say, you started at 15 and you're only a young, you can only have been in your mid-20s at this point? Yeah, very, very, very early 20s. I was 19 when I started with Peter West, yeah. So how did you get that, did that, your confidence to be able to go into a room like that? Because that feels like that's something that would, you know, scare the most seasoned sort of business presenter, but you were in there without any backup. What's going on there? Well, just give us, how do you... I, I think, think of some that? of that training, as I mentioned, goes back to becoming the press stringer for Littlewood's Pools. Because on a Sunday, um, I could see the results of the pools. Um, I could then see if there was likely to be a big winner. I could then work out to whether that big winner was going to be in my territory. And I knew I was going to be driving in my beaten up old Mini to a house on my own and convince the person I was going to meet that I was one person they're never going to forget in their life because I was going to come to tell them that they'd won a substantial sum of money um, on the pools. Trust me, I'm a young, nice, honourable, you know, no harm um, you know, individual that's convincing you, forget your cross that you put for no publicity. It's better we control it because somebody's going to spit on you. So it's better you come with me, come to London. I've got five suites in five different hotels I can choose from. I'm being contacted by all the journos that all wanted the intricate story. 
you know, I'm whispering in their ear, giving them sort of insights to make them feel they're getting a special story. They're then sending me checks and I'm saying to my bosses, well, what do I do with these checks? Well, they say, cash them, you fool. But it gave me confidence of, you know, dealing in an environment with, you know, important things, getting superstars to come and be giving away the checks. That It was a tremendous schooling as a young man. You know, this is in, in 17, 18, 19. And it was a tremendous way with Peter West being broadcaster and teaching me, if you like, and presenting, presenting skills and, you know, taking deep breaths, talk slowly, Patrick, listen, you know, don't you know, think that they're not going to contribute. So there's lots of things about listening and talking. So, yeah, I felt quite skilled. No question when I went to Argentina, I was petrified, as one would be, because, you know, I'd been there previously where we were beginning to start that contact, you know, and people were disappearing. And when you got comments like, oh, I think everything's quiet now, you know, where are they all? And the answer is six foot. <laughs> you knew they meant six foot. So it, it wasn't, but yeah, you just, I just relied on listen, be calm, speak slowly, don't show your nerves. And, and, and that then gave me the ability to actually be talking to high-profile military generals about their image of their country, which when you think about it, they could have probably just shot me on the spot. But um, it worked. It, um, because, again, that's the power of football in that, you know, World Cup, even back then, let's be quite candid, hosting the World Cup was so important to them, having had that military coup, than losing it, that if I then... Not that I perhaps could, but I was threatening it, could move it to Colombia because Colombia was going to be another venue at a, at a future date. Um, you know, that could have happened. But it wasn't that they just agreed. You didn't see a gun. You didn't see an army uniform. You didn't see barbed wire. They were all in Adidas three stripes. You didn't know who was the military, who was doing what to whom because they looked like a sports person. They embraced what we said, the team and everything. If you look at it, you know, there's no way that Argentina wasn't going to win that World Cup because everything about it was, you know, this ethos that they wanted to present themselves. The fact of all those corporate companies coming was tremendous for them. I feel slightly guilty now when I know as much of the history as I now know. But then I thought, you know, what I'm doing for sport, for the country, for the government, for the countries that are coming, for Scotland, who are actually going to be participating there. It, it, it was a tremendous, tremendous thing. And that really, I think, changed everything because that then led on to what we now know of packaging, of picking, putting the rights together. You know, all those agencies developed from a lot of them, from the young guys that were then working with me. You know, that, that really was the turning point and the beginning of this whole transition. Do you think, just before we move on from 78, do you think it was it was crooked in terms of what happened on the field? Do you think they were, it was fixed? Uh, there was one match. I think it was Peru. Um, yeah. I, I don't think because, you know, Argentina were a brilliant team, as they've always been a brilliant team. I, I was very much involved and watched most of the games and was flown around in um, Horse Dazzler's mate's private jet to, you know, around um, Argentina to, to see a lot of the matches. No, I think from a playing point of view, other than one where they had to win by a certain number of goals, 
I don't know, but they did. And let's be quite candid, they were a very good team. I think against Holland in the final, no, I think I think they were the better team and they won. But for me, God, I was so happy that they won. And I've never in my life, as I came out of the hotel to go off to the final banquet ceremony, must have been looked like millions of people in front of the hotel bouncing. As we walked towards those people again being petrified, they parted and it was like a, a parting of the wave that they had this pathway that they sort of let us and the other dignitaries walk through while they're still cheering and bouncing. And I just couldn't believe it, this sheer humanity of, of, of just uh, making a way for us in such happy, joyous feeling. No hostility, no threat. It was just extraordinary. And we just walked from the hotel off to the major palace for the um, ceremony, and it was just amazing. That's amazing. It's, it's, it's also, it's interesting watching the, the, I don't know if you've seen the Maradona film, the documentary. Yes, I have. But there was, that gives a, obviously he didn't, he wasn't picked for that. He was 16 and, you know, the, the, the argument being he should have been in the squad and, and Minotti didn't pick him. But there was, there's a bit in there about the, just the level of poverty in Argentina and where he came from. Yeah. And at that time, and obviously, as you say, it was a military um, regime. And there was a, but you also got a sense of the, just the massive amount of pressure, someone like him, if you're a superstar footballer from that environment, just the amount of pressure that just stays with you for the rest of your life, I guess. Well, you saw it on his, on his funeral, on his passing, you know, I, I, I had the great privilege, of course, in the following year, 1979, of taking the Coca-Cola Cup, the FIFA World Youth Tournament to Japan, my great getting to know Densu. And, um, you know, he was then, you know, the superstar. So from 78 World Cup, great success, media, PR, promotional, to continue with the youth. You know, you couldn't write the script in any better way for him arriving in Japan with that whole ethos of, and don't forget, back then, Japan wasn't a soccer country. They, they didn't, when I presented to JVC, to Fuji, to Seiko, they didn't know what football, what soccer was. I had to spend a lot of time with a lot of materials just explaining the power and the passion of the sport. But my God, once he arrived and where he was on stage in 79 as a follow-up event, you couldn't have wished for anything better. You mentioned Densu a few times, and we should just sort of, again, fill in some of the, the, the gaps. Because, again, my sort of reading of this is that um, West Nally and with Dassler, that the idea was that essentially you were going to be a sort of ISL. That's what it could have been. Densu undercut you. Is that right? Or what? Well, just unpick that for us. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. Slightly sort of complicated story because after Argentina 78 became Spain 82 and the expectation of Avalanche because of this tremendous success was he wanted to take from 16 teams to 24 teams. We needed more stadia. We needed bigger um, broadcasting centres. We needed more money. Um, and, you know, to my horror of having basking in the limelight of thinking I was very successful after Argentina, had the big problem of how do I now multiply the money significantly? And I created a thing called InterSoccer, InterSoccer 4, which is a four-year programme starting in 79 through to 82, which amalgamated FIFA and the World Cup 
We created the Gold Cup in Uruguay. We brought in the UEFA rights, working with Frankie back then, um, and had the European Cup, Cup Winners' Cup, European Championship in, in a package and made it limited, less is more. So I only wanted a limited number of companies, some of whom I'd found through the Argentinian experience, like Canon and Philips and people were clearly you know, targets for me and Gillette. Um, so we created this massive program called InterSoccer that would probably multiply 20-fold the levels of revenues that we were generating from the first attempt at, in Argentina 78. I was working with Dentsu Takahashi then, the famous Takahashi and I you know, got to know each other, a bit of a playboy he was back then. He had a brother that had a very successful business and they had private Boeings. You know, he, he was quite a character. And we worked with him on the World Youth, FIFA World Youth Tournament. We had a World Swimming Cup. We created the Toyota Cup then, in those early days. So we had a good relationship with Dentsu. However, cheeky as he was, he thought my pricing on the inter soccer program was too expensive. Oh, it's too expensive, Patrick. And I said, no, it's not. No, it's not too expensive because basically I've created this program to raise a level of money. And the only way I raise this level of money if I have each company paying the equal amount of money, either a full price package or a half price package. Um, and I said, I can't, I'm not cutting it. McDonald's were trying to knock me down with prices and things. I can't, I've got to stick to my last however hard it's going to be. And my God, it was tough. You know, I probably went through two years of hell, um, uh, but would not, would not break. I knew I had to stick to it and achieve it. So in the end, I sold directly through to Canon. I sold directly through to JVC. I sold directly through to Fujifilm, supported by Jack Sakazaki with my partner in Japan. We went and we did the pitches with Seiko and everything else, and we got them to commit. And of course, the Japanese system back then is they didn't sign contracts with you directly. They wanted to go through an agency like a Dentsu. Because Dentsu had sort of knocked me back on the pricing, we actually worked with Hakahado. So Hakahado came in and signed JVC with us, signed Fuji with us. And in fact, we're working with us on other products like Davis Cup and what have you. And I didn't know that I was waking up a giant because obviously, in terms of face in Japan, in terms of losing your dominant position. There's a lot of face and a lot of face in Japan. And of course, this is coupled with my friend and supposed partner Horst at this stage. And if you remember the book that was written, written about the shoe wars mm. and Horst's family, Horst needed money. He um, had his partner, there we go, um, uh, Wealthy Gelfi, as I used to call him, Andre Gelfi whose private planes it was that we had in Argentina being flown around in the Gulf streams and things. You know, I got to know Andre quite well, his great big boat down in Monte Carlo that I think he then sunk for insurance purposes. Great, colorful characters. Um, he and Horse had fallen out and Horse needed uh, a lot of money quickly because he was investing in Hungar, Coxportive, Arena, fighting with his family, he wanted to get control of his family. So Horst said to me, look, can I raise uh, a, a pretty large sum of money and he'd exit, you know, in other words, buy him out of our interest. And I said, look, if you could get FIFA or UEFA to agree that we're going to roll our program over from 82, 86 and on to 1990, yeah, I, I created a 
thing called Project West, Peter West, Project West, and I went out on a basis that he and I had reached an agreement. And I got three companies, Coca-Cola, IFA, and Mills and Allen that did the stadium advertising signage here um, to back me on a thing called Project West to raise the money to buy Horst out because he needed the money. Unbeknownst to me, while I'm just putting this final thing together, although it had sort of been announced that that's what's going to happen, Dr. Kayser was now collaborating with me to solve certain issues with Rolf Daler and other things that are going on. There was an expectation that this whole thing would go forward. And in a lawyer's office, there was a signed agreement to that fact. I didn't know that my friend Takahashi and his big boss had been given a very large check by Densu to turn off the tap because they could not stomach the fact that Hakahado was getting these big agreements, getting these contracts, was appearing to be more dominant than the great Densu. And they went to Horst and offered Horst 55 million gift in, in many ways, in that basically what it was, well, well, if you could turn Patrick's tap off and we take the soccer program and the Olympic program, because don't forget then I'd created the Olympic program. I'd been working with BP the, uh, in the Olympics in Moscow. I'd already, you know, was doing the same thing with Olympics as with um, soccer. Horst, I remember talking to me saying, Patrick, with you, I get some money, but I have to give you everything. Densu, not that he told me then it was Densu, I'm being given money. I don't have to give anything other than a percentage of something that you want all of. Basically, he said, I've got deep pockets, sue me. And he set up ISL that had no experience, had no history. He took some people from his own organization like Klaus Empel and Jürgen Lenz, who I got on well with and I liked. He convinced some of my staff to, to move across, not many, because I think most of them were extremely loyal. But ISL was created basically on our projects without understanding, because later history shows the way they collapsed meant that they never really understood the fundamentals of the business. But Horst had this amazing ability to get out of all his issues, have all this money, not have to give anything up because he kept all what he would have normally had himself, but basically giving up my percentage of the business. But at that young age, you know, could I sue? Could I, 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 I foolishly perhaps thought, well, yeah, you know, take it on the chin. I was pretty exhausted because it was exhausting having done all this. So I had no idea then to where it was going to go. How would one know? Had I known, maybe I would have thought differently. But that meant that Densu and Dazzler then became you know, 49, 51 partners of a business that suddenly had these incredible rights, which they've done really nothing to achieve. And yeah, disappointing, but there we go. We all learn a lesson. There's a, I mean, you mentioned the book and it, I recommend readers. It's, it's Pitch Invasion. It's called over here. It's called various things. It's about Adidas Puma and the making of modern sports, Barbara Smith. And they, and she got access to the, the Adidas sort of archives and, and, um, it's it's you know it's a really interesting sort of history of of this period. One of the things that comes through is even from the beginning about 
Dassler, his, I mean, you always to take notes in meetings. He was very, there was almost a sort of paranoid bit to him. Is that, is that, did that develop over, over the time? There was, there was, um, you know, little stories about he, he collected files on everyone he met and he had this incredible sort of system by which he would then sort of know what their likes and dislikes are. He knew their family and wives' names and, and you know, there, there was a, there was a, it's a really, I don't know, it feels very um, sort of almost Cold War, John le Carre aspect to it. 100, 100%. A couple of things I need to say, then making comments on that. Horst and I had a very good relationship. Um, he always was like a father figure to me. We spent a lot of time together, traveled together, private planes together in um, uh, hot houses in Moscow, drinking vodka together, um, being on private planes together, going to um, beaches together. Um, I had um, New Year's Eve with him and his family in clubs in Paris. And I'm sure if Horst hadn't died as early as he did, not long after he got what he wanted with the family and other things, I'm pretty certain Horst would have come back and made things good with me because he really did bond with me. You know, he we were very, very close. But what you've just described is absolutely true. You know, he he was paranoid. Horst had this bad habit of always trying to catch you out. So he would always phone me at the most extraordinary times of day or night. And even today, if the phone rings at two o'clock in the morning, I leap out of bed to answer the phone because I don't want to answer the phone to sound like I'm uh, where I'm waking up because it would be Horst. And I always wanted to be on the ball with Horst as if I'd been up all night long getting all the information that he wanted. But he did. He, 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 I don't know if he ever slept, but he had a whole team of people. He had people constantly keeping tabs on everything. You had to report back everything. We had to dissect everything after dinners, despite how much alcohol might have been drunk, to what we thought. Yes, he kept files. Yes, he kept information. And yes, he he knew about individuals. He, he, he a bit, I suppose, a little like I did, studied people, listened to people, you know, from a PR perspective. He knew what turned people on. He knew what turned people off. And this is a tragedy to the FIFA gate scandal, if you like, because, because Horst would never have allowed the fact that he paid Avalanche was a very clear objective because he knew if he didn't pay Avalanche and FIFA paid Avalanche, eventually he'd lose that influence and that control. But he didn't pay people just because he paid people. He only paid people that he knew was the right thing for him to do. But it might be another person just needed a bunch of flowers on their birthday. It might be that another one needed to see Jackie at the terrace when you're staying at the hotel in Paris, and Jackie would find a very nice warm comfort for him for the evening that he's staying. So, he, yeah, he studied people completely, but he understood them, and therefore, yes, he used it to make sure that he impressed them and got their support, got their vote, got whatever he was seeking. But it wasn't just about paying money commissions. He was far, far cleverer than that. And therefore, for the tech zeros of this world and all these other people that Jean-Marie Weber and people just kept paying commissions to would never have happened because that, that wasn't part of his philosophy. 
He was extremely clever, extremely shrewd, extremely you know knowledgeable about human frailties and you know how to influence and how to get, but not just crass. There was no just write checks and send money. It was not was not his style, but his style was to keep data, to keep information, to constantly be on top and never be surprised that somebody was suddenly going to appear in a position of power or a position of influence that he wasn't well aware of, but equally to make sure that the person that was popping out, if that was Nebbiolo, then it was a person that he'd put in to that position to work with Samaranch before Samaranch is elected because he didn't want somebody else to be popping out to become the president of the IOC in an unexpected way. So yeah, he was just completely, I don't know I've ever met any individual in my life other than Horst that was so determined, so strict, so paranoid, so constantly, constantly, constantly wanting and storing, changing languages every few seconds. Extraordinary man, absolutely extraordinary man. Given, I mean, at this, I mean, Sepp Blatter is someone, I mean, I guess the, the jump I want to make from there is, is a sort of culture um, thing within FIFA because Blatter was is a is a thread from Dassler and you of that period to obviously you know the last few years and that same feeling of you know the stories that you of of people being paid off people with brown envelopes there's people sort of um, you know. There are, there are sweeteners, there are deals, there are all of that sort of corporate culture of FIFA. It feels like that has Dassler's fingerprints on it because that's where Blatter learnt what, how sport works and what sports politics is. Is that a, well, is that a true? There's two, yeah, so two sides of it. Yes, on the sports politics, but then on the payments, no. I think the payments would never happen to the degree that they happened had horse not died because he wouldn't allow, you know, a Texero just being the son-in-law of an avalanche isn't somebody that he would say deserves, you know, to be getting paid money if any rights are passed or what have you. He, he wouldn't have entertained that wholesale Caribbean, that wholesale pay money to people just as a matter of cause. That was a misunderstanding by completely uneducated, sports marketing uneducated people that took on a thing called ISL without any foundation of knowledge or background because they didn't grow the business. We grew the business. We understood it and they didn't. So the payment side of it, and maybe even with um, Sepp, uh, you know, he wasn't part of that payment. It, it, it all got out of hand because people then just started thinking, if there's an agreement, just pay them cash, just pay the money, which was wrong. And horse wouldn't allow that. The sports political side, yes, yes, of course he taught um, Seb, Sepp and others the whole process of, you know, getting votes, controlling votes, making sure that, you know, your back is covered, you know who's coming out of the woodwork, you know, put the threats down, um, make sure you get yourself elected. Because you have to remember that, you know, when we started with FIFA, um, probably five or six staff, only at Zurich. Dr. Kayser was the general secretary. We didn't have anybody in FIFA to be our point man on the FIFA Coca-Cola development program and the World Youth Tournament going into Tunis in 77. So we had to recruit somebody 
really ourselves that we would put into FIFA, which Avalanche and Dr. Case agreed. <coughs> and through our friendship with then Tommy Keller, who was the president of Swiss Timing, head of rowing, fantastic guy, um, Tommy Keller recommended Sepp Blatter, who was a Longines PR man, smooth, good, friendly PR, told good stories, wore his coat over his shoulders, smart, um, you know, amusing, liked to drink, out with the girls. You know, he he was great. And he said... That's a wearing your coat over your shoulders. I, that's I, a tell. I, that's the, that's a tell, you know. That's a, it's like having a carnation in those days in the financial times, you know, or a gin and tonic. You know, you know certain trademarks that you had to have as being the PR man. Um, so he was recruited by us. He spent some time with me in Barker Square uh, with, with West Nally. Um, and then he spent quite a bit of time with Horst in Landersheim. Um, and he would give his life to Horst. He, he, you know, he, he would see Horst as being the man. If he'd get any money, he doesn't need any money. <coughs> he would give his life to this man that's making something of him that he would never have been. In the early days, he was very efficient in running the development program, the World Youth. He wasn't really the World Cup at that stage. But then a whole political scenario started creating itself when Horst needed that money. Horst had entered into a battle with a very powerful guy in Germany called Rolf Dehler, who had these crazy characters called Sport Billy and Sport Susie. The FIFA mascot. The FIFA mascots, yeah. Somehow, unbeknownst to Horst, Rolf Dehler got into contact with Kaiser and Avalanche and provided money for the first FIFA house. And there'd never been a FIFA house before that already had been renting them. But the first FIFA house in Zurich was provided funds by Dehler, who wanted his mascots, Sport Billy, Sport Susie, to become FIFA mascots. And the first time was going to be in Argentina in 78. And also he wanted the FIFA marks of the World Cup and other things. Comes back to the question about Horst, absolutely paranoid about things coming out at left field. Horst did not know anything about that. And he went absolutely bonkers to find that somebody else had found their way in to the inner sanctum of FIFA and Kaiser and Avalanche. And a big war started between Daler and Horst. Did Daler try and sell those mascots to Pepsi? Might have done, but I then obviously became involved because I had to have those stupid heads in Argentina. So I became well aware of Sport Billy, Sport um, Susie. I got to know uh, Dela. And unfortunately, I had to fly occasionally in Dela's plane, which had two rubber bands and a couple of propellers and was terrifying in comparison to Wealthy Gelfie's Gulf Streams, I can assure you, or the, the Coca-Cola jets. So um, I became an authority on people's private planes and Dehler's was probably the most basic of all of them. But I got to know Rolf and I got to know his um, sidekick that was running it. And, you know, they were all right. And I started sort of, if you like, becoming a mediator to try and get everybody to collaborate together, be together. And Dr. Kaiser was very supportive of that for obvious reasons. But this thing then manifested itself when Horst needed to do the deal with Dentsu. He needed FIFA to agree, because there was going to be a, a change. 
And whatever anybody would have said, Avalanche, Kaiser, Blatter, they would have all liked me. Let's be quite candid. It's not that they wouldn't like me. They would like me. So Horst had to call in a lot of favours, as well as come to an agreement with Rolf Dahler to stop the battles, to make sure that his plan wasn't going to be thwarted by FIFA or UEFA or by the IOC then or by Nebbiolo and IWF. So, you know, those. so he then collaborated, but had to come to a deal with um, Avalanche that somebody had to take responsibility for what was the Daler issue. And that was poor old Dr. Kayser. So Dr. Kayser, who, by the way, at that stage is also Blatter's father-in-law, because Blatter had married <laughs> Dr. Kayser's daughter. This is, it's amazing, isn't it? We talk about you know, the uh, documents and things that make a great movie. Um, uh, Kayser had to be ousted because he had to take the chop and somebody had to be put into the position of trust as being the general secretary. And that then cemented this amazing you know, relationship because Blatter now is being given the mantle to move on in this incredible role so therefore, he's embraced with Horst and, you know, doing things and learning about the political because of the Africa-Asia development program meant that he had every vote from Africa, every vote from the Caribbean, every vote from Oceania, every vote from Africa. He was now taught by Horst, the, the little book of terms of flowers, um, um, girlfriend, um, terrace hotel, uh, you know, he was schooled and therefore, as we saw on his elections, uh, as and when he required elections, Avalanche initially, then Blatter to follow. Yes, he. there was no doubt he was n never going to lose an election because he was the man that had supported whoever that individual was in Guyana, you know, right back to those days of development program. So the trust and the um, the structure that, Horst's understanding was carried through and that proof of the pudding is that duo and even then when Avalanche stepped down and Blatter carried on if it wasn't for the FIFA gate he'd still be there today. There was a it's interesting looking at some of the the news clippings of when um, the you know when he finally went Blatter there was a sense of I remember him, the the judge um, called him clumsy, you know, in, and that he would be, there was a sort of anecdote of, you know, it was a couple of million quid had gone from ISL was going to Avalanche and it just went across Blatter's <coughs> desk. Um, and he didn't, you know, and the judge said he's fairly unquestioning of, you know, the payments that were still going through and the rest of it. So it's quite the, the way in which you've painted, Dassler, and then when you look at Blatter, it's almost like he was a sort of wannabe Dassler. That was yeah. that's what he wanted to be, but actually wasn't quite as smart, wasn't quite as politically adept. He was, he was you know, good. more. He, he was good. Yeah. He was, you know, he wasn't. He wasn't bad. No, he wasn't a Dassler. Nobody could be a Dassler. But you again, you you have to remember that um, when I put Project West together and raised the money to buy Horst out, and Horst presented the figures that we were. All give him to what was going to be paid for the continuation of the project that we created into soccer. 
there was an amount in there to Avalanche. And I refused. I said, we can't pay Avalanche. He's the president of FIFA. FIFA pays Avalanche. We don't pay Avalanche. And I think I even may have mentioned this to Avalanche, I think in some way that I could never understand why a full-time president as he was that was working and you know was flying on the Concorde from Rio to Paris in those days when it existed and things, he was constantly hands-on, constantly helping with the development programs, youth tournaments, with you know what's going on in Argentina and everything else. He was a hands-on president. So he ought to be paid a salary. And if he was paid a salary, because the money was there, if he was paid a salary, all of this issue would never come up. And in some ways, although I've been pilloried at it and I almost cut off my Twitter account in terms of the venom that I got when Avalanche passed away and I made some complimentary comments about Avalanche because I think Avalanche did put a lot into the game. I think his abuse was he should have taken it as a salary and nobody would have argued. And the amount of money he got compared to others was not very much. And I still think that. I think Avalanche did a lot for the game, but stupidly allowed Horse to convince him that it was better that they paid the salary rather than FIFA. And that was a problem that then manifested itself because when Horse died and ISL are trying to be clever and being manipulative, all these others popping out of the woodwork, agreeing to do contracts and things, it looked like it was the norm to pay a percentage to that individual. That was never Horst's intent, would never have been his intent, but that was the death knell of ISL, and it was the death knell, really, of Blatter, wasn't it? Because eventually the fires just became too great. The moment um, that the, the judiciary in the United States came into it and some of the stupidity of some of the members of FIFA in America Chuck Blazer and his cats and his apartment at Trump Tower and the tax evasions. and Come on, it just got to such a ridiculous, you know, outrage that once it started being exposed and once the arrests were there, you, you just couldn't stop it. You know, it was, it was open season. So eventually Blatter was going to have to step down. But he would never have had to step down for any other reason. He would have been secured for as long as he ever wanted to stay there. It was his house. So in some ways, I could see him thinking, oh, my God, how can I be taken out? of? Um, it's my house. They're my watches. This is my empire. This is what I built. You know, it must must be a real, real you know, shock for him to feel that he's got to leave. But there we go. There's a, um, a just a sort of, uh, the, it's interesting, the cash element, because whenever this is reported on, you know, whenever we, we uh you know, it, coverage of, of FIFA. It's, it's quite often people say, and he was paid cash. And the, and the you know, I remember um, with the implication that that's dodgy, you know. I remember the story, and it might be to do with the Toyota Cup, with Brian Clough back in the sort of late 70s saying, he's not taking Forrest to Japan because, unless he gets cash. And he said that was, it wasn't crooked, it was to do with, uh, security and that you could trust cash and you, you know I'm not going to go on the basis of a of a, a deal or some other sort of uh, financial transaction what do you think because obviously the, is that a misrepresentation do you think in terms of the mistrust of, of cash because it's quite exciting it's you know it's bag men full of you know brown paper bags full of cash but 
is it a slight sort of misrepresentation of, of actually how business gets done? A, a, a bit. First of all, I have to put my hands up. I was the man that gave him the cash. Um, back then, of course, although I got UEFA to agree because we're working with Dentsu to, to create this first ever a cup, in, intercontinental cup with um, Independente and Knott's and Forest, we had to negotiate with those teams to get them to come. And I had a lovely guy working with me called Jimmy McMullen, who was a fabulous guy. But Jimmy and I went to meet the great man to convince him to bring the team to Japan. And he did make that commitment or make me make the commitment. He says, Patrick, you know, before I go on that field, I need the $25,000, if that's what it was, can't remember who it was, um, in cash <coughs> before I go on the field. And it was sort of a point that I just then had to agree to because it was so important that they came because UEFA couldn't force them or wouldn't force them. So, yeah, I, I agreed it. And I remember then um, with my wife, who wasn't then my wife, she was my fiance, the two of us having going into a bank in Japan and having to collect this cash, put the cash in this envelope and actually go and give it to him before they were. But all, all because we'd arranged it. But you're right. It was because his point of view. He'd been there before and it hadn't happened. And because back in those days, you know, the money wasn't around. Murdoch hadn't, Sky hadn't taken off. You know, everybody thinks there was so much money back then, but there wasn't. You know, there wasn't a lot of money to pay people or give people. But, yeah, we, 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 we put the cash in a brown envelope and we gave it to him. But it was all part of the prearranged deal to, to convince him there was not a risk to get his team there. And in some ways, he did it on trust to me and Jimmy. He looked us in the eyes and, you know, poked, poked his finger at us and, you know, made us promise that we would do that. And we did. So that, that's there. <clears throat> I think the cash thing, though, also manifests itself round back then to athletics and rugby and other things, which is the boot money, because Horst mm. was very much involved in boot money. We had a policeman called Andy Norman back then, who was the bag man for the British athletics. And often, you know, I would have to go to Crystal Palace car park um, with cash, um, maybe in brown envelopes, and give cash to Andy Norman so that Andy Norman would pay athletes. And even in the early days with the IAAF, when the IAAF knew they had to change this rule of amateur pro and sort of reflect that people have got to start being paid, they also agreed that we would use Andy Norman <coughs> to make sure Certain athletes appeared in the Golden Mile because we were doing this Dubai Golden Mile. So I gave cash to Andy Norman, who would then make sure that certain athletes that promised that they would run in the Golden Mile, a feature IAAF event, would run. And Andy would make sure they'd run because they wouldn't get the cash unless they did run. And that took a long time to change in terms of... That would be the athletes, co-over yeah, of it, um, all, all the people that were then running back in the in, in the golden mile days, and it's not that they it was the system. It wasn't, and it was unfortunately it had to change. But that was the system. The system was ridiculous. Um, but as more commercial pressure came on, wearing your three stripes boot where it started, as opposed to your puma or whatever it would be. Um, and the fact that they shouldn't be getting any money, nor should rugby players then get money. It was all part of that change from amateur to professional. The rules had to be written, new regulations had to be structured. But that then was cash was a commodity very much used within sport. Same with tennis players. 
tennis players was the same, you know, with Donald Dell and Frank Craighill and other things before it really switched. Again, you played tennis players to appear. If I was running the Newport Greenshield Newport Welsh Open, you know, we paid tennis players after Wimbledon to come and play at those events. It was the norm. Let's just finish ISL off. The I remember it was to do with ATP tennis, wasn't it? They were it was. bidding. It was. And they seemed to be bidding against themselves, was it? That was the story. They got to about $1.2 billion. Well, they thought they were bidding against somebody else, and they really weren't. They were just being hyped up. ISL, um, first of all, when Horse died, because he and I had that close personal relationship and he really knew at some stage that this this was wrong and he should put it right, the management then... um, really didn't want to admit that I existed because they didn't want people to think, well, how did this business come about? So I went through a period of my life where I couldn't be seen to go anywhere near FIFA, couldn't go anywhere near the IOC. Everything and anything that I did, they would try and buy out. If they heard that I was doing something, they would probably write a big check to to, to not let me do it, including tennis, because I was being successful back then. I think we had a 21-year period of making Davis Cup a big success with NEC. We brought Coca-Cola into it. We brought uh, Lacoste into it. We brought Ebel watches into it. We brought um, uh, Volvo cars. So, you know, we 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 were we were cleverly packaging Davis Cup, tennis, Federation Cup. We still had some tournaments that we did with ATP, but so they would see things like we were doing on tennis and they would then to want to try and emulate or buy into it because they thought that was where they should be going. They also had some tremendously profitable projects being FIFA's and UEFA's and the Olympics. They botched up Olympics, of course, and the IOC and Michael Payne's another story. Um, so, But they also botched up what was a tremendously profitable football project because they were paying these stupid payments to all and sundry. So what was an incredibly profitable business was being sort of stupidly eked away, and they were still trying to buy more rights, be it clubs or be it tournaments, because they, 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 they hadn't been involved in the early foundation of this and had just this paranoid thing that they wanted to control. And they had this vision of going public. They thought, you know, the... The thing now is, is, is to create a, um, uh, a structure that they could take to the market. So their whole ethos was now to go to the market. And I, strangely enough, was lying on a beach in the south of France one summer when a guy who I know quite well walked up with this massive roll of telex, not telex, of um, um, photocopies or whatever um, used to get back in the old day. Um, fax machine, that's it. Massive roll of fax machine chucked it on my chest. I thought, what the hell is that? He said, I think you'll enjoy reading that. And it was all the financial accounts of ISL who had been presented to these guys because they could be potential financer backers to this potential float they were looking at. And I, I, I must have spent two hours, three hours. I couldn't, just couldn't take my eyes off going through the whole thing. And it was a complete disaster. The guarantees that they'd written out, um, 
the uh, revenues that they were directing against what should be extremely profitable. It was a complete financial mess. And how they managed to actually survive as long as they did is a mystery because it was very clear to anybody that understood the business or could read the business. These guys were just completely out of control. I suppose the Jurgens and the Klauses by this stage had moved on and were siphoning off some of the rights through UEFA and other things. The IOC had moved on and were doing their own thing. You know, Blatter had to separate to a degree, but not completely. But it was very clear they were steering that ship absolutely into a mountain wall, you know, with all on their own. They didn't need any help whatsoever because they saw something. They saw maybe I was doing something with it, so they'd write a big check to try and get it. They'd see that something else seemed to be moving. Ah, let's go right a bit. Or, like in the case with um, ATP and things, were just being played at their own game, hyping the price up, without the understanding that they needed to have to how they're going to offload that guarantee. Yeah, just to round round us off, and it sort of takes us back really to where we started, which was the, you know, we talked about Media Pro and we talked about um, the 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 risk reward element within sport, but essentially, the whole thing is just this: uh, the excitement that otherwise smart and you know clever business people politicians marketing people football and big sport just does something strange to their you know they they it sells a dream that people project onto and i guess can start to make those mistakes it becomes it's almost sort of it moves from rational decision making into irrational decision making that's the, the you know one of the powers of sport i guess well, that's absolutely true, because if we just go back to the Argentina example, you know, here is a military junta of a major country really seeing the power of the product. You know, the power is in the World Cup and the imagery of the World Cup, just as many other countries have. You've only then got to transplant that to Qatar and look at the money that's being invested by Qatar and all the money they're now investing in other sports in Qatar to justify the fact that this isn't just some lunatical sort of thought of having a World Cup in a tiny little country. This is all about the country's image and ethos. Russia, you, you name it. Um, and, and that's not just countries. That is companies. That is egos of individuals. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. But when you're trying to make a business out of it and make it profitable, you've got to know what you're doing. You know, when we put Project West together to raise that money to pay horse and everything else, we'd already sweated our through the most extraordinary time and we knew that we could sell on at a marked up price. And if you're successful, you ought to be able to get a reasonable percentage increase so you could always protect your margin and minimize the risk. ISL never understood that. They never, so ever, got- ever understood that. It's worth you've got to have the valuation totally. or whatever the whatever your methodology is it's got to be you've got to understand what you're buying yeah what it's like even with sky and all the great thing on on football you know they took a risk initially to know whether they would get those subscribers they got those subscribers they know exactly how many subscribers they can get and to sustain so even with bt and others you know the millions and millions that they put down it's pretty pretty well calculated it's pretty well you know they've they've got the history and the knowledge 
And again, with the Amazons and the Facebooks, with the power that they've got, they know the leverage that they could get to get their viewers to get there. So most people of this nature really understand what they're doing, can make their judgment, and therefore put a price to it that is realistic and will give a return. Others come in completely stupid, way off, don't know what they're doing, chuck money. I suppose if you're government, then it doesn't matter. You write it off through the Emirates airline or whatever it might be. But um, the fact is, the power of sport, be it Olympics, be it football, be it World Cup rugby, you know, big conversation there one day. Um, you know, it, it's just ridiculous that it still has that incredible motivational power and always will. It will always have that power, as will match poker one day. Yes, we haven't even mentioned get it in. Yeah, that is a different podcast. There's a whole series in match poker. We'll come back. Well, listen, Patrick, I really enjoyed that. I was expecting to enjoy it, and I really did. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah. All right. Monday. And wait to talk to you again soon.